reminder about the gospel, and if you were here for Sunday school earlier, you know we started a great series, a great season and series. If you didn't make it, uh, the combination of the video, the discussion groups, I, I think it's going to be a great semester. So if you didn't make it this morning, hope you will next week. Uh, anybody here old enough besides me to know who Yogi Berra was? Okay. There's a reason I ask. We were on stage here, oh, a month ago, and I was going to use Captain Kangaroo as an example. So I turned to my junior partner, Josiah, and he's got a look on his face, and I'm thinking, hmm, this is an obvious example to Mike, who's 65. I said, Josiah, do you know who Captain Kangaroo is? And first I thought he's putting me on. It's like, hmm. And he turns to his brother, David. David, do we know who Captain Kangaroo is? <laughs> no. I'm ready to use an example, assuming everybody's on the same page, and I realize nobody's on the same page. So Yogi Berra, okay, some of you know who this is. So a little background on Yogi Berra. He was a baseball player, really a remarkably successful career as a catcher for the New York Yankees. His career spanned from 46 to 89. He went from a player for about 20 years, became a baseball manager and a coach, hugely successful. So for a long time, just the cultural moment of, of the United States in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, he was an icon basically for success in baseball. But on top of that, lots of people have success in a given field, and you know they sort of live and die on that. Yogi Berra, though, also was uh, uh, well-known, successfully well-known for his apt remarks on life. So, so his phrases have outlived his, his uh, notoriety for his baseball success. So if you look him up online, you will inevitably find him tied to one of his notable quote. So these are just a couple. He said, redundancy, by the way, is the key behind all of his memorable quotes. You can observe a lot by just watching. Uh, this may be one of his most famous. It's like deja vu all over again. <laughs> or he said this one, you know, uh, Robert Frost's famous poem, A Fork in the Road, Yogi Berra simplified all that. He said, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. <laughs> yeah. The one I'm thinking about this morning, though, is it ain't over till it's over. You know, somebody else, I think, it ain't over till the fat woman sings. You know, it ain't over till it's over. Now, we say that's redundant on one hand, but there's a point behind there, isn't there? Because there's a temptation on this one to assume something is over before it really is. It ain't over till it's really over. So for him, that might be a baseball game. You know, sometimes in sports you think of great comebacks. It seemed like a game was over of one sort or another, and some team makes a remarkable comeback. So a baseball game, a career, a business, a life, it ain't over till it's over. That's meaningful. That's helpful for us. Uh, I ran track in high school and college, and I was in one of the first track meets of my senior year, and I'm comfortably in the lead over the last hurdle, so much so that I decided to take it easy on the other guys behind me. So you know what I did? I, I slowed down. I was going to coast over the finish line. And of course, you know where this story goes always, inevitably. The hard-charging Highland Park Scotty behind me passed me and won the race because it's not over until it's really over. You know, I never did that again. In 1997, people forget this today, but in 1997, Apple Computer was within weeks of bankruptcy. Apple Computer looked like it was going down, going down hard. And today, that same company is worth $2 trillion. It's the most valuable company in the history of the world. But in 1997, it looked like it was over for Apple Computer. Uh, Mark Twain, the story's told. I don't, I don't know if this is uh, true or not, but it's cer certainly broadly told and retold that his obituary was run while he was living by a certain newspaper. 
And so his quip when someone told him about that was, the report of my death are greatly exaggerated. <laughs> it's, it ain't over until it's over. And of course, where this goes for us this morning is this. 2,000 years ago, there was a Jewish rabbi called Yeshua, or Joshua, or we would say Jesus, crucified on a Roman cross, and it certainly looked like all hopes attached to him as a Messiah and a Savior by all those around him who knew him, it looked like all those hopes were dashed and gone because it looked like to them, right, it's all over. Because there was no doubt that Jesus really was maliciously treated, really was crucified, really died, really was buried. It looked like it was all over. In fact, listen to this. This is from Luke 24. You know, he's, it's after his resurrection, and sometimes he had these appearances where he showed up and he interacted with people that knew him, but somehow they were precluded from knowing this was Jesus. And that's what happened in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus. A couple of his disciples, his followers, they knew him. They're leaving Jerusalem for the town of Emmaus, and he comes up and joins them. And they're having a conversation with Jesus, but they don't know who it is. And it's rather pathetic. Uh, he says, hey, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, are you the only one from Jerusalem who doesn't know all these things that have gone on? Well, what do you mean? Well, there was this Jesus. He was, he was uh, approved by God, mighty in word and deed. And listen to the language. Verse 21, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. There's this sense of our, our hopes were going along. They were riding on him and our hopes died. We had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. They said, but it's now the third day, meaning he died three days ago. And they say some women, probably crazy women, they've got this wild story. They said they went to his grave and he's not there. And these angels said he's risen. And then he says, but, but some of the men, the hard-headed men that you could trust, right? The reliable ones, right? They went there, but him they did not see. You know, this thought that, our hopes are raised up on Jesus. He's died. He's buried three days ago. Somebody said maybe he's alive, and we're like, uh. you know, we went to check, verify him they did not see. These disciples were in a conversation with the one whose resurrection they did not yet believe in, and they were worried. And you can understand emotionally, we, our hopes are pinned on him. We watched him crucified, died, and buried. We haven't seen him since. Our hopes have failed us. It looks like it's all over. But in that same conversation, Jesus revealed himself and all their misgivings were gone. In fact, it's a lovely, it's a lovely part of the story you can read later, but it just says their eyes were opened when he went to break bread and share the Lord's Supper with them, as it were. In Luke 24, in Luke's gospel, so right after that story, he winds down his gospel narrative of Jesus' life this way. Jesus says to his disciples as he shows up, Thus it's written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You're my witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. Stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So he appears to them alive. They know who it is. And he says, hey, I've got a new mission for you. Luke's gospel ended on this note of an ongoing mission. Not that things were over. Jesus had really died, but he's really raised. And as we get into Acts 1, which is where we're going here in just a moment, we'll see that there's this thought that Jesus was simply beginning something in the gospel accounts, in the incarnation. He was beginning something, but what he began wouldn't end, even with his resurrection, it would go long past his resurrection because a new element of his work or his labor, his mission on earth, would continue well past not only his resurrection, but his physical departure from earth. So something was started. It's going to take a transition in the book of Acts, and his work on earth is going to continue. His mission had not ended. And you see that same thing, by the way, in Matthew 28. It's a little different account. But you see the same thing that Jesus says, I've been given all authority, and so I'm commissioning you with my authority to go and make disciples in all the earth. That's the thought in Luke's gospel. The Jewish leaders who'd conspired in Jesus' crucifixion, and think of the Roman, the Roman, Pilate, Roman governor Pilate, think of the Roman soldiers, they'd all killed Jesus. They'd all buried him. You remember the tomb is sealed. The guard is put on there. 
And they're all confident that it's over, that that Jesus, that guy from Nazareth who's this pesky rabbi and everybody wants to get rid of him, it's over. His life is over. And certainly among false assumptions in the history of the world, that's got to loom as the biggest. It ain't over. We're starting a new series this morning through selected passages out of the book of Acts. And so if you have a study sheet, the series title is Act Out act out that's a little cheesy so is mike acting out are you acting out or acting up but it's the book of acts and what we'll see is that the new mission jesus has and this is so this is revolutionary we'll talk about it a little bit more develop that this morning but it's a call for jesus initial followers to go outside the paradigm they had for good reason the program they assumed was God program they were in, God's calling them outside all the borders that they thought were given. So not only geographic, but ethnically, God's going to call them to do something they had zero expectation about. So it's the book of Acts, and it's the outward call that Jesus lays on his disciples, guys, right down to us today, of mission. It's of mission. Acts is primarily a book about what the mission of the church was. We'll contrast this a little bit. On one hand, if we say the family of God, the body of Christ, the local church, at one level, the church is meant to build itself up in love. You think about Ephesians 4, and we're all gifted, and we're meant to encourage and help each other, edify each other in the faith. We grow our own faith. The last short series in August, we talked about God's great work in us, in us, internal, is transformation in the image of Christ, but that's, that's internal. But Acts is about the external call to mission for the church. So really two phases. You can think of it as a, a family that gets together to bless and encourage each other around the family table, but then they've got labors to do apart from that time where they're getting together. Acts is about the mission of the church. It's not so much the family, though we'll see elements of this, especially in the opening chapters, but it's not so much about the family gathered as it is the family scattered for mission, for the labor that Jesus was calling the church into after his resurrection. So today we're doing a couple things. We're doing a, an introduction. That usually means people's eyes glaze over because it's, it's information, it's boring, but sorry, we've got to cover some of those bases, and then we'll get the lesson itself from Acts 1, 1 through 11. My, my hope on this series is this. When we go through Acts, it's selected passages. I'm not teaching through every verse and every chapter, so it's selected passages. And what I'm trying to do is highlight passages that either are particularly significant theologically, so we, we want to know them because they develop something of theology that's a, a big rock. And the other thing, and probably more dominantly, is this that what the early church went through and sort of labored through and things they came to grips with are often things that you and I are facing in our own time, in our own culture, in our own day. So one of my hopes is that Acts becomes a lens by which we see what God's calling us to in our time, in our geography, in our day. And I think it'll, I think it'll be uh, particularly helpful along that line. Uh, Acts is unique in the New Testament you know, you got the Gospels, they're stories. They're not always chronological, by the way, but they're, you read them, and it's a story. It's, it's sort of a biography, a special biography. It's a narrative, we would say. But, you know, you think of that, you've got four narratives about Jesus' life, and then you've got a whole lot of letters. Well, Acts is what connects those two. It's the connecting link between the stories of Jesus' incarnation and life and then everything that follows, you know, right through the book of Revelation at the end. Think of it a little bit like this. This was helpful to me. Maybe it will be for you too. If you read through the first four books of the Bible, besides Genesis, excuse me, first five, take Genesis out, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they basically tell elements of the same story, like the Gospels do. But then you get to the book of Joshua, and what you've got is this. Moses has died and gone, and Joshua, his protege, is the new leader, and his assignment under the Mosaic Covenant was to lead God's people into the land of promise, where they are to kill or otherwise push out all the Gentiles in Israel's land of promise 
so that they become a city on a hill, a bright light, fixed geographically, but a place where God would meet with his holy covenant people, okay? And then we'll talk about this more in a minute, but Gentiles could come and learn about the living and true God through Israel that there would be this entity in a given place, okay? That's, that's the connecting link that takes you into Judges and the, the rest of the narratives in the Old Testament. In the book of Acts, Jesus, like Moses, has died, and of course in Acts he's risen, he leaves the earth physically. But his protégés, the apostles, as we'll see, empowered by the Holy Spirit, under a new covenant, are now tasked with leaving the land of promise and taking the Gospels actively and personally to all those Gentile groups that were otherwise precluded from the land of promise, that were kept outside the covenant of faith that God had with Israel. We'll talk about this again in just a little minute. So both of these are transitional. So Acts is going to tell us how did we get from the gospel accounts to all these letters, Romans and Corinthians, Galatians, etc. Acts is that connecting link, and it tells us what the church is up to and why. Acts is written, by the way, by the same author as the gospel of Luke. So if if you read Luke 24 and Acts 1, you realize it's just, it's seamless. They're tied neatly together. Neither of those works tells us specifically Luke was the author. The early church affirmed Luke's authorship. And what we'll see here in a couple of texts is that Luke was personally with Paul through most of his missionary adventures and misadventures and ships and shipwrecks. Luke was right there with him. So for instance, Paul names Luke three times in his prison epistles when he's imprisoned in Rome. Colossians 4.14, he's a beloved physician, so he's a physician, and he's particularly loved. Philemon 24 tells us that Luke was a fellow worker with Paul. And then 2 Timothy 4.11, which I think really, uh, brief as it is, speaks volumes to Luke's character. 2 Timothy, you know, is Paul's swan song. It's right before the end of his life. He's in a Roman prison. He's going to be executed. And he says, everyone has forsaken me. This is the guy that started the churches in the Gentile world. And he said, here at the end, everyone's forsaken me, but Luke alone is with me. When everyone else had fled, Luke remained with Paul in prison right there near the end of his life. This is something, when you're reading through the book of Acts, when you get to Acts 16.10, you realize that the personal pronouns change suddenly because suddenly you get the we and the us passages in Acts. And the we is Luke is now part of Paul's journey. The we and the us is Luke is now part of Paul's journeys. And you get there's over 70 by my count of these instances. So Luke is not, he's not just recording someone else's story from Acts 16 on, he's part of it. He's writing about what he saw, what he heard, not just what had happened to Paul. Uh, also, Acts is neatly arranged in a couple different ways. So, you know, one of the challenges we usually have about Scripture is we're not sure how it fits together or where it is in history or elements along that line. Acts is neatly, you can think of it uh, sort of an outline in one of two different ways, whatever's most helpful. Jesus is going to tell the disciples, so this is the deal. Uh, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. And so as you read Acts, we're going to see the gospel go out through the apostles, first in Jerusalem, and then in Judea, and then Samaria, that's Acts 8, and then the rest of the world. So that'll be the rest of the book. That's one way to think of it. Another way to think of it is this way. Roughly, Acts 1 through 15 is primarily the story of Peter spreading the gospel in the land of promise. Primarily, not without exception, the missionary journeys start in chapter 13. But it's not until Acts 15 that the church in Jerusalem is figuring out what to do about these Gentiles who are coming to faith. So 1 through 15, primarily the story of Peter, the apostle to the Jews, the gospel going out within the land of promise. From 16 on, it's primarily about the apostle Paul and the gospel going out to the Gentiles, to people like you and me. 
so that it's easy to sort of break it up to keep track of things, big rock anyway. So Luke was used by God to not only record what Jesus began to do, this is the language of Acts chapter 1, but also what he continued to do by the Spirit through the apostles. And friends, then beyond them, this goes right down to you and I today. There's a church planning network called Acts 29. And where did they get their, their name? Because there aren't 29 chapters in the book of Acts. And that's the point. So Acts 28 ends, and the point was Jesus' mission given to the apostles is still going on today. That you and I remain part of the same mission Jesus gave to the early church, and their name, Acts 29, was that thought that the mission of the church is still being written. It's still being recorded. It's not in the pages of our Bible, but it is ongoing so when we read Acts or when we think of God's call to mission for our own day, the thought is it's still going on. We're like soldiers who've been put on duty and you stay at your post and you fulfill your duty until you're relieved of duty. Well, this mission is still the mission of the church. Now remember, mission is what the church goes out, acts out, out and does. The church is also called to build itself up. So the thought would be something like this. In fact, some churches will have signs above their door. You're in your mission field when you leave the church. We gather to be encouraged and build each other up in our faith, right? But then when we go out, that's mission. And we'll talk about the mission that Jesus calls them to here, the first 11 verses. So if you have your Bibles or your apps open, we're going to take Acts 1, 1 through 11 to start this morning. And we'll start with those first five book, uh, excuse me, five, first five verses. Uh, Luke starts Acts, Acts of the Apostles, or Jesus' work through the Apostles, uh, Acts this way. In the first book, O Theophilus, and that first book would be the Gospel of Luke. And both Acts and uh, the Gospel are dedicated to Theophilus. The name technically means a God-lover. And so this is someone who probably sponsored Luke, who contributed to Luke's support, but also it was someone that in the Gospels, Luke made sure, he said, Theophilus, I want you to know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. And so Luke's writing with an eye to make sure that Theophilus and others like him know the certainty of the person and work of Christ and the ongoing mission he'd called the early church too. So he says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, and began, here's the key word, Jesus began something in the Gospels that's actually continuing today, in Luke's day, today, when Acts was being written. This is what's going on today, and it's what's still going on, as we said, in our day. What Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up his ascension from earth back into heaven, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Jesus, 40 days after his resurrection, appearing to the disciples and the apostles. You remember he eats fish. He shows up at the Sea of Galilee, shows up at various times, and, and actually to various individuals and various groups over that 40 days. Um, but he also tells them he's got a new call on them to extend his mission forward. So he's not just showing up and having a lovely chat. He's telling them they have work to do going forward. Luke tells us that Jesus' earthly ministry of preaching and teaching and signs and wonders was only the beginning of what he was up to. In other words, Luke starts with this point is Jesus' mission is not over. Not only is his life, his life really ended in death, we're not saying he didn't die, but that it wasn't over because he died. So he rises from the dead, and Luke's implication here right out of the gate is that Jesus began something in the Gospels in his incarnation that's continuing today. The mission isn't over, Jesus' life isn't over, and Jesus' mission isn't over. 
He says there's a new mission and you're going to need some new power in order to do that. And that's going to be the Holy Spirit, which we'll read about in just a minute. Look down at verse 6 again to conclude the passage through verse 11. So when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons, uh, an indefinite period of time or, or a particular occasion that the Father is fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. When he'd said these things, they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men, two angels, stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So, verse 4 during those 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus is talking to the apostles about the kingdom of heaven. Specifically, Luke tells us this is the conversation. So no wonder at verse 6 they ask him, is this the time that you're restoring the kingdom that you've been talking to us about? Is this the time of the restoration of the kingdom to Israel? Right. So if you're a Jew in their day, you're looking for the Old Testament prophecies and promises about Israel's restoration, not only restoration, but elevation to the center of the world. Where Messiah, they know Jesus is the Messiah. They know he's the messianic king that was promised. So are you going to come and reign in your kingdom now? Because that's our expectation, and it should be from the Old Testament. Is this it? Is the kingdom coming in? Is this what's going to happen now? Are we entering the promised golden age? Is, is this it, or are we now part of it? Is this what's next? And guys, Jesus' reply had to be disappointing. And when I read it, I, I let out a little sigh. Because if I was there, I'd have been disappointed. So my expectation is, okay, you suffered, all our hopes were dashed, but it really wasn't over. You tell us it's really just beginning. And so is this the beginning of the kingdom? Because this is what we're looking forward to. The nations bring their wealth to Jerusalem. People, people uh, from every nation go to Jerusalem, and if they refuse to send envoys where King Jesus is ruling over the earth, they get no rain. It's the golden age they've been looking forward to. And Jesus says, uh, we're not talking about that. And I'm just thinking they would be like, what? That's my hope. Okay, it's not over because you're alive. The mission continues, but certainly this thing is next. And Jesus just absolutely shifts their focus and their concentration says well let's not talk about that right now he does not tell them and this is important he does not tell them that the old testament promises are void but that their desire to know god's timing is not the issue of the moment they want to know the big timetable and jesus says what you need to focus on is what's at hand so if my wife invites you to go watch a movie with her, don't sit next to her. So when I watch a movie with my wife, do you know what she does constantly? She says, what happens next? <laughs> do you know this? Especially if she knows I've seen it. It's really aggravating. You're laughing, but I'm telling you, it's painful. Sit away from her. So what's the deal? <laughs> she knows. <laughs> so what's the deal? So you know what the deal is. She doesn't want to be disappointed. She doesn't want to be frightened. Tell me what's happening before it occurs so, so I'm good in the moment and nothing rattles me, nothing frightens me, nothing disappoints me. I'm good to go, right? And that's sort of what the disciples are asking. What's next? Tell us so we're sort of in the moment. No unhappy surprises. We're right there with you. God doesn't speak to future events telling us ahead of time what will happen to the disciples there. And we do want to say, again, uh, we want to say, not only did he not invalidate the Old Testament prophecies and promises, but you remember in the Gospels, Jesus reiterates the Old Testament. And in fact, Jesus talks about his second coming and instituting his kingdom, Matthew 24 and 25. He indicts the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders, for, for being able to read the signs of the weather, but not the signs of the times of what God was up to. 
So we don't say he's naysaying this desire to know what God has said about what's coming up. But this is the thing. It's really an issue, not of God's timetable. It's one of the of, uh, focus in the moment. Focus in the moment. Uh, if I'm a 10-year-old, and it's, let's say it's May 1st, and so my school year's winding down. So I've got all my, my finals, my tests, my papers. You know, I've got a, a lot of work that's due in a short period of time. But I know that in June, my family's taking a vacation to the mountains or the beach or whatever, whatever's appealing. So it's May, and in June, there's a vacation coming. And so if 10-year-old Junior is sitting at the table and it's time to finish his exams and his studies, but he says to mom, hey, tell me again about that vacation coming in June. Mom might say something like, Junior, it's going to come and it'll be great, but that's not what you need to focus on now. What you need to focus on right now is completing your studies for the school year. I think that's what's going on. Because the disciples were so focused, again, I think appropriately, on what they assumed was God's next move in his economy, his prophecies and his promises, that Jesus' mission for them going forward is so radically different that he's telling him, it's like, do you ever put your hands on your kid's face and you do this and say, look at me? It's because you really need to get their attention because you know what, what they're going to hear, they're not going to get. And I think that's what's going on with Jesus and the disciples. Uh, what is the unexpected mission that requires the power and presence of the Holy Spirit? What is it that Jesus needs to get their attention on so that they focus on this and not what they thought was coming next? And that's out of verse 8 where he said, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Let me ask you a question. Is you will be my witnesses, is this a new mission for the apostles and disciples? You'll be my witnesses? This is not new, right? Because they've been testifying of and to Jesus through their time with him on earth, right? So being a witness of and for Jesus, that is not inherently new. So what's the new element that he's introducing that's the shocker for them that they're not going to get or not want to get? It's that they're going to take their witnessing to the rest of the world. Guys, this is revolutionary, this is way outside their box, and they have no idea what to do with this. And so when you read the opening chapters of Acts, you understand these guys are confused. And even though God put his hands on the side of their head and said, look, look at me in the eyes, this is what we're about, they still didn't get it. It took, it took decades, literally it took decades, and it took particular revelation before the Jewish church came to grips with what God was doing because the mission was so radically different than anything they'd understood before. Verse 8, Jesus tells them that they'll receive a new power and they need the power to do what he's commissioning them to do to commit his ongoing works, which is the person and presence of the Holy Spirit. So there's a new mission and there's a new power to go along to enable the mission to be accomplished. John 14, 18, Jesus had said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will come to you. The reason Jesus can say or Luke can infer Jesus' works began but they're continuing is because Jesus, by the person of the Holy Spirit, is with them. So in Matthew 28, when Jesus says, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you, he left physically, he left the earth, didn't he? That's what Acts 1 is. It, it, he rose from Mount, the Mount of Olives back to heaven. Physically, he's not here. But he told them, I will be with you. I will be with you. And that promise is by the Holy Spirit. You remember in uh, John's Gospel in the upper room, Philip says to Jesus, show us the Father and it's enough. And Jesus' response is, Philip, if you've seen me, You've seen the Father. To see me, to know me, is to know the Father. Well, here, it's that same kind of thought. The Spirit with you is me with you. Me with you is the Father with you. The Spirit with you is me with you. It's the fulfillment of the promise of personal presence, the Holy Spirit. We'll look at this in Acts 2. But it's also the power that Jesus said, it's better for you that I go away. If I don't go away, the Spirit won't come. 
that it's, it's more needful for us on Jesus' mission to have him with us by the person and the presence of the Holy Spirit than him physically in that limited way. If he's here physically only, but I don't have his spirit with all of us, he said, it's actually better for me to go so you can have the Holy Spirit. Uh, <laughs> so there's a new work, and it's, it's witness, but it's witness to the world, and it's a new power. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. Have we come to terms with this, that God's mission and work requires the power of his spirit? Has anyone here argued someone else into the kingdom of God? You were so clever. Your arguments were so convincing. You were all that. And because of you, they believed, right? And if you think that's you, let's talk afterwards. Because what we, what we learn, right, uh, John 15, apart uh, from me, you can do. Yeah, goose eggs, nothing. So that we understand God's work. Guys, this is true from the creation account forward. When God creates the heavens and the earth, what's the first thing said about God spoke, he's created the heavens and the earth, and the Spirit of God is hovering over the surface of the deep. God's work is always accomplished by the Holy Spirit, period. If the Holy Spirit doesn't do it, it doesn't get done. So God's work is, is in us, we said, that's transformation, that's interior, but God's power is in us for mission externally focused. So we don't argue people into the kingdom of God. Now you do see passages in Acts where it'll say that Paul reasoned with people, right? They, they made defenses for why the, the gospel made sense. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, it's a message that appears foolish to some, but to others, it's the power of God. There was explanation, there was defense, but at the end of the day, it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that transformation, faith, and new life is brought to pass. And guys, it's, it doesn't end there at conversion. Do you think there's anybody here, can, can I make my wife love me? I can't. Can, can you make your husband love you or can you make your spouse respect you or can you make your children embrace your faith? You can't. You, you can't. We don't have power. There's certain, there's certain levels of effects we can have on others. But ultimately, none of us has the ability to simply change another person. We have influence and God uses all that. That's not what I'm talking about. We don't have the power to get inside another person's heart and affect change. That's the work of the Spirit. So in Acts, we begin a whole new phase in God's mission on earth. It's not just the age of the church. It is the age of the Spirit. And that every Christian is stamped, we talked about this in August, is sealed with the Holy Spirit. We can be filled with the Holy Spirit. We don't have power for Jesus' mission apart from the Holy Spirit. So we want to be faithful to go out and occupy and have those conversations. All of that is good, but we do so knowing it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that conviction occurs, that repentance and faith and new birth, and not only new birth, but growth and illumination and maturity occurs because it's the Holy Spirit that's at work. The power is borne by the Holy Spirit, not by us. Do we pray like that's true? Do we speak like that's true? Do we act like that's true? This should be liberating too, by the way. If you think all of life depends on your abilities, you are in trouble. And you're going to lay awake at night trying to figure things out. If you know God's work is accomplished by His Spirit, my call is just to be faithful. And as, as witnesses on mission, it is our responsibility to have those gospel-centered conversations. Absolutely. But we do so with a great liberty because we know, as we talked about in Sunday school class, we're scattering seed. It's God that brings about life. So the onus is not on our back. The Holy Spirit is present, and it's his work, his power that will accomplish Jesus' mission. So there's something new that's going on for the disciples, and this is what they're challenged with. Jews in the Old Testament knew that God saved Gentiles, didn't they? So you go to the little book of Ruth. Is Ruth a Jew? She's not a Jew. She's a Gentile. She's a Moabite. But she, like many other women, especially in King David's family tree and in Jesus' family tree, they're Gentiles. And so Jews knew in the Old Testament, God saves Gentiles. And proselytes, you see them in, in the gospel accounts as well as the Old Testament. That's not new. 
God saving Jews is not new. But what did that conversion, what did that process look like? So Israel, you remember God said, you guys go into the land of promise, and what do you do? You kick everybody else out. Why? He says, if you don't, you'll become like them. They're idolaters. They reject the true knowledge of me. You'll become just like them. So if the Jews do, under the old Mosaic covenant, what God calls them to, think of this. They become God's holy, distinct people, and they fill up the land of promise. And Israel really becomes a city on a hill. And you can think of this, maybe King Solomon's days might be a little bit like this. But the thought was, you'll be holy and distinct. People who hear about your law, your covenant, they will say, man, there's nobody else on the earth like that. Or in Solomon's day, you remember Queen of Sheba says, I've heard about this, the wisdom of this guy and the, the wealth and the, the honor of this kingdom is too good to be true. I've got to go see for myself. That was the gospel in the Old Testament with Israel, that Israel would be distinct, the city, the light on the hill, the nations would come to the light of Israel, God's covenant people, and they would hear the reality of Yahweh and they would believe. So Gentiles could come to faith in the Old Testament. That's not what Jesus is saying now. That's not the mission. The mission is not to sit in and around the land of promise and hope that some Gentiles will wander by and they'll come to faith. That's all now upended. Jesus tells the apostles they're going to leave Israel, the land of promise, to take the good news about Israel's Savior to all nations, to Gentiles of every stripe in every place. They had a hard time with this, guys. It's confusing. When you read the story in Acts, it's confusing for a reason, because they still don't get it. Jesus keeps telling them, and they still don't get it. And listen to this. Um, I won't read the passages. Uh, when you read the, uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, that's written from prison. So that's at least 60 AD. That's three decades after the resurrection. And Paul tells, remember it's primarily a Gentile church, Paul tells those Gentile believers, he says that before the gospel, before this current age began, he said, as Gentiles, you were in the dark. You were without God and without hope. But all that's changed now because of Jesus' new mission. And he says in chapter 3 that Jesus' new mission was a mystery that God had specifically, particularly made known to Paul and what was the mystery? Well, Paul says this is the mystery. Mystery means this was not explicated in the Old Testament. This was not spelled out in the Old Testament. They had no reason to know this. It's a mystery means God's got to tell you or you don't know it. And he says the mystery is this. God was going to remove the covenant, Moses' covenant, because it was a wall that divided Jews from Gentiles. And the, the mystery is the law is going to be removed and God is going to form one new man out of Jews and Gentiles. Guys, this was revolutionary, and they didn't get it. For decades, they didn't get it. That it's not Israel, Israel, Israel. It's now this new body that's comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. The, the Jewish believers, they had no place for this. They had no reference for this. They didn't know what to make of this. That it's not going to be the temple on Jerusalem, the land of promise, and the Gentiles come to us. It's nope. You leave the land of promise, and guys, right after 70 AD, there is no temple and there is no Jerusalem. After 70 AD, that's over. You're going to leave this place you've called home for 1,500 years, and you're going to go into the nations that you've otherwise avoided. Jews wouldn't even eat with Gentiles. They wouldn't go into a Gentile's house. And Jesus says the new mission is not just that you witness, but that you witness to and among Gentiles. They just had a tough, tough time coming to grips with that. The apostles' hopes and expectations regarding the glorious future haven't been annulled, but they have been delayed while Jesus' work in calling out a bride for himself is fulfilled. And I do want to I do want to close on this note of something old. So there's something new. What is it? We're witnesses. That's not new. We're witnesses out of the land of promise across the whole earth to Gentiles of every stripe that in the past we always would have avoided. God's breaking down every racial, ethnic, historic division. And he's saying we go to anyone and everyone to share the message about Christ. That's the new mission. But there's an old 
view or an old look here too as well. And this is at verse 11. Uh, The angel said, as Jesus ascends to heaven, uh, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So on one hand, Jesus says, guys, don't worry about the kingdom coming. On the other, the passage closes with a reference to the kingdom coming. It's not as if God is setting that aside. And again, Jesus spoke to all this. During his days on earth, he spoke to all this, the coming kingdom. So that's not been annulled, and the angels say he is going to come back. If you read Zechariah, is one of the most underrated books, I think, in the Bible. Read Zechariah, 14 chapters, and from about 9 on, hugely exciting because it, like the book of Revelation, is talking about the second coming. And Zechariah 14 is explicit that Yahweh returns to the Mount of Olives. Where did Jesus leave from? He left from the Mount of Olives. And who is Jesus? He is Yahweh in flesh. Yahweh with the armies of heaven descends to the Mount of Olives, Zechariah. And where else do you read that? Revelation 19. So it's not as if this stuff isn't important, isn't going to be fulfilled. It's still on the table. And so one of the things you see not only in Acts but in the epistles is that Christians are meant to labor on mission. That's the outward call. But with this view or this eye to being restored relationally and personally with King Jesus, we talked about this last month, the bridegroom, there's supposed to be that thought that while I'm being faithful on mission, I'm doing so as someone who's expectantly longing for Jesus appearing and our eternal reunion with him and his taking up his throne, coming into his glory to rule over his glorious kingdom. So on one hand, Jesus says, let's not talk about the kingdom. On the other, the passage ends with an inference of the kingdom. So the mission is the thing of the moment. That's the new work. Outward call of Christians to make sure everyone around the world has heard about this while we wait expectantly to see Jesus and for him to enter his glory. So we're putting one off for the other. I used to think when I was a new Christian, God was telling me I was an evangelist, and I labored hard to share the gospel, and uh, I realized I am not an evangelist. I was mistaken on that call, but I got to share the gospel a lot. This last week, I was in this passage, and I was taking a walk on the Shunga Trail near our house, And I'm on my way home, and I've got a quick pace, and I'm overcoming a younger guy who's walking back on the trail, and he's sweating, and I start up a conversation with him, and uh, it's like, you know the duh moment? Duh. I've been reading and thinking, okay, mission, (laughs) gospel, conversation. (laughs) I'm talking to a stranger on the trail. Oh, (laughs) I could have a conversation with him. (laughs) So I said, his name's Mike too, by the way. He's got to be a nice guy, right? His name is Mike. Whenever I meet another Mike, I just say, thank you, I can remember your name. That makes it helpful for me. So I say to Mike, Mike, are you a Christian? And he says, "Uh, sort of. I said, Mike, it's like being pregnant. You are or you're not. Oh, so he's cued now. He said, he said, uh, Well, I believe in God, and I read my Bible. And I thought, man, that's great. He said, but I don't go to church. And so, you know what I did, of course. I invited him to church, and I hope he comes. I don't know where he's at, right? He believes in God, and he knew some of the references we were talking about. But it's like right there on the Shunga Trail, that's mission. And I need God to sort of hit me, slap me. Oh, Mike, the mission. This is mission right here. We need to have that sense that while God is at work in us, transforming us into Christ, and while the family gathers, we're here to encourage each other. When we go out, we're on mission. And we're meant to look for those conversations we can have with others. Have you heard about the gospel, who Jesus is and what he's done? And we can do so with great liberty because we know it's only the Holy Spirit that accomplishes God's work. We want to be faithful, we want to show up, we want to have the conversations. We'd all that trusting that 
It's the power and presence of the Holy Spirit that will bring about Jesus' mission in calling people to himself. So we get to be part of that, but it's not on our shoulders. Uh, There's some points of application. I'll just stop here on the bottom of your study sheet. We should live with this appreciation that we're in the age of the Spirit. We have the Bible. The Spirit's with us. Guys, this is privilege. This is high privilege that all the Old Testament saints longed for and didn't get. We take it for granted. Every Christian is on mission. We should have that expectation. We're looking for those opportunities to make sure the people we rub shoulders with have heard the gospel. It's worth asking ourselves, by the way, are our goals God's goals? You know, the the disciples had goals they thought were God's, and Jesus says, well, hold on, interrupted, new mission, new goals. Have we left our own desires behind because God has shown us what his desires and his mission for us are? And while we're seeking to be faithful in all this, are we doing so with this expectation of Jesus appearing? of Jesus appearing, that I'm laboring in the day he's given me, but I'm doing so with an expectation and a desire and a longing to see him come, not only to be with him, he's the one you and I are made for, you will never find fulfillment apart from Christ. He is who and what you're made for. So there should be a personal longing for that, and also that King Jesus is going to come in to his glory. He's going to sit on the throne. He's going to judge the nations, and we'll be there with him. And that's something we should anticipate and should long for. So with that, stand, and let's close. I want to read a passage. It's a messianic passage out of Isaiah 42, but it puts some of these elements together. And let's, let's read that together. Thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, From the prison, those who sit in darkness, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. (laughs) Now, 